back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode number 93. Today, we're going to talk about that thing you do at home all by yourself in your bed every night, sleep. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this episode is all about sleeping, sleep hygiene, sleep medicine, insomnia. We go through the whole thing. We have a very special guest, and I'll let him introduce himself right now. So I'm Dr. Nate Gordon. I'm a family and sleep medicine physician currently practicing in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. This is the sleepiest podcast we've ever done. I I don't actually have any any other good puns. I really tried. And again, like I just don't have the creativity is not not with me this morning. Maybe because I didn't get so much sleep last night. Which we're going to talk about. I feel like before we, uh, I feel like before we go further, we have to add a little bit to to his credentials. One of his most important credentials is that he was actually one of our classmates in medical school. So that adds that adds a little bit more credibility. I yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's relevant. It's relevant. Also, also Nate might actually be the strongest sleep doctor in in the world. Or at one point was the strongest. <laughs> at one point, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the pendulum the pendulum is swung in the other way, unfortunately. But yeah, that uh, at one point was a you know something that I could potentially report. Yeah, so we all went to medical school together, Eastern Virginia Medical School, and uh, I grew up in that area, like not too far away, about forty five minutes away from where Austin grew up, and then. Um, uh, after that, did my residency in DC. And then followed that up with a uh, one-year fellowship in sleep medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. So that's kind of a little bit more about my background. But give the listeners what they want to hear. What was your best deadlift? <laughs> oh God! Unfortunately, you always knew that my we always knew that my squat was better than my deadlift. So I think my best deadlift clocked out at like four fifty, and my best squat clocked out at like four ten. So yeah. Yes. And I was at 195 after an aggressive weight gain <laughs> of uh, 175 pounds to 200 pounds in what, like three months? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The garage that was a special that was a special time in our lives. So. <laughs> <It> was, uh... <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, we're we're psyched to have Nate here. We get a lot of questions on sleep, uh, both just generally on Instagram or YouTube or especially at our seminars and um, neither Austin or myself has any real, you know, formal training in this. I mean, we, we, we learn stuff in medical school and residency and, and, you know, we, we pick things up, but not as far as like a formal fellowship or, or any sort of like credentialed um, um, education, we, we don't, we don't have that. So it was nice to bring an expert on to kind of get into the nitty gritty of sleep. Now, before we get into this, Austin, how many patients do you see in the hospital that have some sort of sleep complaint? Like what percentage uh, would you say? You mean, well, so I guess I could take this a few ways. One is that during their acute hospitalization for whatever medical uh, illness brought them in, just about everybody gets poor sleep in the hospital because of the nature of the hospital. But independent of that, a huge proportion of the patients that I'm seeing do also have some other kind of uh, kind of uh, breathing disorder uh, in the context of their sleep. So often obstructive sleep apnea, sometimes obesity plays into this, sometimes having heart failure, other medical conditions can all play into this. So 
super common in the inpatient setting. And then as far as like out more outpatient primary care consult work that I do with people, you know, fatigue and poor sleep and low energy and stuff like that are super common complaints as well. So I do a, a quite a lot of evaluation of, uh, of things from that standpoint, doing home, home sleep testing and stuff like that, that we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so in, in medical school, I was like, that was the running sort of, uh, of joke that, you know, if, if you want to, if you don't want to sleep well, you just come to the hospital and you, if it's a patient, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll never get any sleep. Uh, one of the residency slots that I interviewed for the, in a place outside of uh, Los Angeles, they were like, yeah, right before you start your residency, you get admitted to the hospital for a weekend and you just get to be a patient and you get woke, you know, woken up at oh, wow. 4 a.m. for your a.m. <laughs> no labs and everything. Way. And I, yeah, yeah, all this stuff. And like, I was like, wait, do you guys really draw blood and stuff? And they're like, yeah, you, so you get the, you know, the full experience. And I was like, I'm not, oh, I'm God. not going to rank I you w- guys. I would not consent <laughs> to that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Not only because I don't know if I wanted to just give you guys a blood sample like prior to enrolling, but you know, that invasion of privacy, but also like I'm about to be <laughs> underslept for the next three years. So like, just yeah. <laughs> let, let me have my last weekend in peace. Um, okay, cool. So let's let's start off with sort of a broad kind of background. Nate, if you had to describe to a patient like why we sleep, what would you tell them? Yeah, that's a good question, and um, it's it's not quite easy to answer. Um, the jury's still working on that, um, but we think that there are multiple sort of functions. Um, Back in the day, and sleep medicine is relatively young. It's only about 50 years old in terms of a like identified specialty, and um, has only been like recognized by the AC, ACGME as like a fellowship trained specialty as of like 2003. So it's still super new. Um, but effectively, I tell people um, sleep is not a passive thing; it's a an active thing, and you're missing out on a lot of. Um, specific uh, brain recuperation type functions. Um, Memory consolidation is a big thing. Um, Energy conservation is kind of an obvious thing, right? Like you're kind of shutting down or booting down the computer if you want to. I know we don't like to compare ourselves to machines too much here, but uh, generally speaking, um, you're sort of conserving that energy during that, you know, those that period of time. And then um, recently, probably in the last couple of years, they identified that um, there's you know, I'd say in quotations, a cleaning sort of mechanism that occurs um, via the glymphatics that are present in your brain system. So basically, you know, you're, you're clearing away toxins and or, uh, you know, uh, negative metabolic substances um, that may or may not contribute to bad things down the road. And that's sort of the goal, I guess, of sleep is to, to help you recuperate in that sort of manner. Yeah. The way I always understand, I kind of conceptualize this was that while you're sleeping, there's a myriad of different hormonal processes that are going on, different sort of maintenance processes that are going on involving like, uh, you know, like you wrote down memory consolidation and like brain cleaning, which, you know, at a, at a cellular level is effectively like this pruning and, and like refining of different synapses between neurons and, and different areas of the brain. It's all these things that are like, you only can occur at, you know, the, uh, a, for, at a substantial rate while you're sleeping. Right. And so I think about like, what is the best sort of detox program you could go on? Uh, it, well, it would involve a lot of sleep, <laughs> the, you know, the correct, the correct amount of sleep. So yeah, no, no amount of like, uh, Tabasco sauce and lemonade juice cleanse is going to get you detox, like, uh, like a solid, 
month of consistent sleep, for example. Um, so I think that's a, a reasonable sort of description of like the general processes that are occurring while we sleep. Um, there's a like a structure though to this. So like a sleep architecture, like how we kind of move through these different phases. And, and I think one of, you know, one of the big questions or ideas that people kind of have is like, well, if I'm not actually asleep, but I'm in bed and I'm quote unquote resting, maybe that's just as good as sleep. And I think going through some of the sleep architecture, this sleep structure will help <laughs> clear that up because it's not the same thing. And as you say, it is sort of a, an active process. So can you take us through this sort of sleep architecture, the structure of, of sleep, how this normally goes uh, uh, while people are, are asleep? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is probably one of the more interesting things that um, when I'm seeing a patient in clinic and going through either a sleep study or just some general education, this is probably one of the big things that people want to know about. So I'm happy to talk about that. And the way we, we want to kind of uh, break this down so that it's a little bit more digestible without getting too into the weeds is you have two forms of sort of predominant sleep. And um, this is uh, as, as basic as it seems. Um, it's 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 actually based on um, eye movement. So you have what's called non-rapid eye movement sleep uh, or NREM sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. And NREM sleep usually consists of about 75 to 80% of sleep for most people um, throughout the night. And this is all um, we'll point out based on in-lab sort of sleep study, clinical, uh, not trials, but evaluations of Try to try to establish norms. So, you know, most people who end up getting recruited for these uh, studies are usually young, healthy adults. So a lot of this is based on young, healthy adults and may differ depending on your population. But you have NREM sleep and REM sleep. So 75 to 80% NREM, 25% REM sleep. And they're all, each like stage has its own sort of flavor and sort of uh, uh, characteristics and determining the different stages isn't so much important for the patient as much as it is sort of for the clinician. But the way we'll break it down is sort of, you know, in these 90 to 100, sometimes a little bit longer minute periods, you're transitioning from what we think of as lighter stage sleep to um, deeper sleep, um, ultimately culminating with REM sleep. That's not 100% of the time, but we'll just go with it as, you know, a potential archetype. So, um, Non, you know, non-REM sleep is comprised of three different stages. It used to be comprised of four different, and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine made it a little bit easier on us. And now it's only three stages. And N1 sleep is your first stage, and that's considered light sleep. And we don't spend too much time uh, in the night uh, in this stage, but it's about five percent, and it's generally speaking like the easiest stage to wake up from. And what's kind of interesting is um, if you wake somebody up from a period of time of them being in N1 sleep they may even report to you like that. They don't even feel like they're asleep. Hey doctor, no, I wasn't asleep at all. Um, <laughs> I was just resting my eyes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Th yeah. That's like nudging Austin when he's, you know, passed out in the back. I wasn't right. I was just resting my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Make it ma making dad noises. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that has some implications, right? Because if a person is spending more time in like N1 sleep um, throughout the night, they may, you know, you might have a patient who reports, and this is classic. I see this probably in a fair number of patients who come to me who say, yeah, doc, I don't sleep at all, like not even a wink. And then, you know, you, you slap on a, like a sleep watch or you have them sleep in the lab and 
you identify quite a bit of time and sleep, but they're spending more time in this N1 sleep. And it makes sense why they would report why they don't feel like they're not getting a ton. Um, so that's stage one. That's about 5% a night. Stage two is where we spend the bulk of NREM sleep. That's about 40 to 55%. And most will report like feeling like they were asleep if you were to wake them up in, in N2. Um, there's not much to say beyond that other than some like characteristic findings that we'll see in N2. And sometimes we see um, some pretty interesting like sleep-related um, uh, behaviors occurring out of N2 or N3 sleep, which I'll talk about now. So N3 sleep is considered the deepest sort of stage of sleep. It's like 10 to 20% of uh, uh, our sleep. And people tend to consider this to be sort of slow wave um, rate in terms of your brain waves uh, sleep. It's typically considered to be the more restorative stage of sleep. And honestly, it's it's very sensitive to sleep deprivation. So like your body knows that it wants more N3. Um, so for example, like if I were to sleep deprive Jordan and say, okay, Jordan, you're going to go to, you know, uh, this many, uh, baby showers this week and you're going to stay up <laughs> and take lots of pictures and not get a lot of rest. Um, the likelihood is, is that that first night that I gave him, you know, an ability to catch up on that sleep, you might see a higher number or higher percentage of this non, uh, non REM stage three sleep. And that's because your body um, wants to wants to maximize it if it can. And what's sort of interesting to point out is that people who don't go ahead. Yep. Oh, sorry. You just get there faster. Is that the idea or like, okay. yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like, um, think of it as a, as a, like a bodily or a, like a necessary sort of drive that you need. It's kind of, it's almost like thirst, right? Like eventually you're gonna, you're gonna, determine that you're thirsty and that's going to be sort of your priority. Well, N3 sleep tends to pop in um, a little bit earlier in sleep deprived individuals if they're given uh, appropriate opportunity. And it's because there's a lot of restorative quality that goes into it. And we're, we're speaking kind of vague because the science isn't still really um, been hashed out, but, you know, relevant to probably our listeners, um, N3 sleep is where growth hormones typically secreted. So a lot of uh, bodybuilders are chasing N3 sleep. And there's a lot of commercial commercial discussion out there as far as how can we maximize and capitalize on N3 sleep. And frankly, um, short of sleep depriving yourself, there there isn't anything that's really been solidly associated with getting more N3 sleep, at least in a safe way. Yeah. So that's that's non-REM sleep in a nutshell. And then, and then you, so you're passing through these rather linearly, meaning most people will go, N1, N2, get into N3, and then, and this is all happening in the, you know, two hours or so, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, something like that. And then people are going to pop then into REM sleep, which probably most people have heard about on some level, um, but, you know, never, they, they don't necessarily really know that much about it. So what, what's happening there? Yeah. So what's interesting about REM sleep um, is, is that if you were to take snapshots of your brainwave activity during REM sleep and compare that to um, being awake or N1, it actually would look the most similar. So REM sleep, even though it's, it's coming later um, in the uh, sleeping period and tends to be considered um, a deeper stage of sleep, is actually quite an active stage and it makes sense because if you're dreaming during that period of time your your brain um, the areas in your brain are sort of active um, and that's why those those stages would appear similarly um, we we tend to think that uh, REM sleep is associated with um, 
some memory consolidation. It's it's you know it's that's not a hundred percent. But then also uh, em- emotional regulation of memories is is something that's sort of interestingly that's been studied, um, and and people who uh, people who who look at this in more detail um, will tell you that uh, this is probably that's probably one of the the more important um, functions of REM sleep. Uh, And then just to point out, REM sleep is one of those periods of time where and we'll get into this when we get into sleep apnea, um, where sleep apnea tends to be worse because um, when you're dreaming in in sleep, it's advantageous to your body to not uh, be sort of capable of acting out your dreams. So your muscles tend to be more relaxed and or sort of paralyzed during this stage. Um, so that's why sleep apnea, um, which we'll talk about, um, tends to be worse in this stage because those muscles tend to be more relaxed, particularly the muscles of the upper airway. So, so you mean all those dreams I have where I'm falling and then I wake up <laughs> in bed, that's when I'm in REM sleep and I, I'm actually paralyzed and I can't, can't do anything. Is that, is that right? That. That is, that's definitely, that's definitely a possibility. There are a couple other things that could be going on. Sleep paralysis is a common one that, um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have experienced, um, and a lot of people freak out about. And frankly, that's, that's sort of a, it's a, it's like a mix between the wake stage and the REM stage. And what that's usually representative of is, um, the person is sleep deprived, uh, because like N3 sleep, REM is also sensitive to sleep deprivation. So, Usually, maybe the second night after catching up on a long period of sleep deprivation, you might see a, a rebound of REM sleep. Um, so you see that often sort of in sleep-deprived individuals. I had a question here, uh, Nate. You, 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 mentioned that you mentioned the roles of this with respect to emotional regulation, and I think most people can probably identify if they're sleep uh, restricted in some way, maybe getting a little more irritable. How far does this go? Does it go all the way towards like, you know, uh, a clinically diagnosed like depression and things like that? Cause we know that there are sleep disturbances in that context. And are they like bi-directional cause depressed people tend to not have the best sleep and is it vice versa? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so there was, it, it, the audio is cutting in and out a little bit, but what I'll say it's, I think what I, I think what you're getting at is you're asking how much does REM sleep sort of play into sort of, um, emotional regulation, like when someone's up and awake and sort of during their day. And, and so the general sort of statement should be that sleep and, um, sort of mental well-being or, and, or mental health is like you said, a bi-directional relationship. So it makes sense that, if you're if you're not doing well in terms of your mood, um, your sleep may certainly suffer, or vice versa. If your if your sleep is suffering for whatever reason, um, your mood definitely can tank as a result of that. Um, in terms of emotional regulation from from a REM sleep perspective, that more so has to do with um, sort of like the quality, I guess, uh, uh, the emotional state of those dreams and or those memories mm-hmm. that are you know, being processed, uh, and, or sort of cleaned during that period of time. Um, it's, it's probably deeper sort of clinical science stuff that I I need to brush up on a little bit more, but, um, I don't think it plays as direct a role as we're sort of talking about in terms of, uh, you know, day-to-day sort of mental well-being. Yeah. I just always encounter it as a particularly challenging kind of clinical problem where somebody might have depression and they have sleep disturbances, but you know, it's like, where do you start attacking the problem? Cause, uh, cause of this, you know, it kind of feeds both ways to some extent and that makes it particularly challenging. 
Yeah, that's that's probably one of the most challenging um, aspects, I'd say, of sleep medicine. Like sleep medicine very much so can be cut and dry. Um, you know, do you have sleep apnea or not? Let me help you treat it if it's severe and affecting your daily function. It's the, uh, the patient who is experiencing um, difficulty from a mental like health well-being perspective. Um, and, and you're right. Like, how do you navigate that? So I usually tell people like to not put things on the back burner, like continue evaluating and assessing this with your primary care doctor, as well as your behavioral health team. Um, because, uh, it's only going to be an uphill battle if you continue to have, uh, mood and, or mental health, uh, and pain and, and pain too. similar situation with pain. You know, we know that, that, uh, sleep restriction limitation tends to exacerbate kind of persistent pain states and pain itself obviously can disturb sleep. So similar, similarly difficult situation. Yeah. There, and we'll definitely talk about that. When we talk about insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, as far as like some bi-directionality between different medical conditions and, and these things. So, um, the next sort of thing that I think people probably are curious about and, and really needs to be discussed before we, uh, while we, when we're talking about sleep is why do we even sleep? Like, all right, we've talked about what it is, what's going on, the general sort of architecture here, but like what, what pushes us to sleep? I mean, what, you know, just think how productive I could be if I just stayed up the whole time. Like, you know, there'd be that seven, eight hours where like nobody else is awake and I'm just hammering out emails or like, you know, screwing around in Adobe Premiere Pro editing videos. I, why can't I just do that? What's what's going on? Yeah, so I, 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 I'd make the argument that a lot of, um, a lot of people would, would say that they, they are not sensitive to sleep deprivation and that they're capable of functioning during the day. But sort of by and large, the majority of the, the data out there suggested that um, to, to a certain degree and, and sort of the, the number of hours of sleep are still sort of, depending on which group you go to, that's still sort of in question. Um, but certainly you can make the argument based on the data that uh, if you stay up long enough, um, you're going to have enough of a sleep pressure building that it's going to affect your daily function. Um, and in general, most people sort of fall within, you know, our, you know, what, what we would expect to be the standard um, deviation of, of need. So somewhere between, you know, six, seven uh, and six, seven hours to about eight or nine hours is sort of the average as to what most individuals need. And maybe I think the, the last time I looked it up, the last, uh, percentage was about 10% of the population may require or may do fine with just less. I think it's an individual kind of thing. You have to really sort of look at it and, and determine. And this is what I talk to a lot of my patients about is if you're coming to me because you're experiencing daytime symptoms and we identify that you're not getting enough sleep, then that's something that we need to concentrate on. On the other hand, if we identify something else, your primary care doctor identifies something that they're worried about, but you yourself don't feel like you're, um, really experiencing a deficit during the day, then we sort of, we should use uh, validated screening tools to verify that you're not experiencing uh, any issues and or, you know, with the thorough sort of history figuring out that you're not actually, you know, experiencing symptoms like falling asleep behind the wheel at the, at the red lights or, you know, stuff like that. So 
I mean, the why we need it, I, I think the reason why it, it ends up creeping into our lives, particularly during the day, is just because we, we develop this sleep pressure. Um, and, and the way that I t- classically will explain this to patients is there are two sort of models that, are, uh, that we're experiencing um, our sleep through. And the first is that process after pressure that we're discussing. And, and that's basically that sort of innate drive to get sleep. And whether that's due to needing to get more uh, that restorative deep quality sleep or that memory consolidation, it doesn't really matter. Like it's a, it's a form of pressure that builds up over time. And I think all of us, uh, at least here, can can relate to that. You know, if you've been up for a prolonged period of time for a call shift, um, towards the end of that shift, you're definitely starting to slow down and, and become groggy. And, and that's just because you've got over time, you've got sleepy chemicals, uh, particularly what we think to be uh, comprised of adenosine um, building up in your brain the longer that you're awake. Um, and that's sort of this, think of it as like a gas tank that's filling. Uh, and by the time that you are given the opportunity to sleep, you're utilizing that gas uh, to allow the sleep process to occur. Got it. Yeah. So there's basically this gradually mounting sort of pressure to go to bed. Some of that. I prefer the term. I prefer the term sleep drive. Sleep drive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It just keep, it keeps building throughout whatever your normal waking hours are. uh, And that, you know, tends to make people uh, engage in regular cyclical sort of sleep habits based on their day-to-day life, which can change though with like shift work or, you know, major stressors and that can throw this whole thing into out of whack. Um, but there's a secondary process that I guess has, if they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I guess I've, I've heard another way to describe this more than the sleep pressures just based on the circadian rhythm, um, process C as, as you kind of write here, what's your sort of take on that? Like, do these things go together? Are they mutually exclusive? Um, how do you, how do you kind of square that circle? Yeah, so so what's interesting, um, I don't I don't tend to think of them as um, I mean they're they are exclusive processes in that they're separate, but they the way that they overlap is sort of how sleep is enabled. So um, you know we talked about sleep pressure that builds up over time. Ways that you can sort of mitigate that, right? Obviously, sleeping so that that brings down some of that sleep pressure. So things like napping or sleeping longer for longer periods of the day may reduce someone's overall sleep drive. Caffeine, um, it is, is a, has an effect on adenosine that reduces it, uh, its effect. Um, but process C or the circadian rhythm that you bring up. So a lot of people like to talk about this. It's, it's really important to sort of understand that this is, um, this is sort of like an internal biological clock that, uh, is running on its own. Um, and it is susceptible to, uh, perturbations from the environment particularly it's, it's most susceptible to, um, to light. That's really a big deal. And that's, that's kind of where a lot of this research in circadian rhythm, um, circadian rhythms is going, which is, which is really cool because it helps the clinician sort of use things that don't hurt people, i.e. light, um, to sort of get them back on track. So what the circadian rhythm is, is it's better to think of it rather as a process for sleep, uh, uh, but rather more so an alerting signal. Um, so over the course of the day, let's say from the period in which you wake up to um, 
uh, early morning hours that circadian alerting signal is sort of gradually increasing. Um, you take a little bit of a dip probably around the middle of the day. Sometimes people like to blame their turkey sandwich on that siesta sort of feeling, but turns out that it's actually process C, uh, their circadian rhythm taking a little bit of dip and that's physiologic. Uh, and then that over, over the course of the day will continue to sort of increase. And that's why we often feel a little bit more alert in the afternoons. And then even um, they've plotted it out um, because the circadian sort of rhythm sort of follows uh, uh, temperature, core body temperature. And what's interesting is just before we go to bed at night, um, our, our alerting signal is pretty high. And that's theorized to be due to, you know, back in the day when we were living in caves and outdoors, we had to make sure that our sleeping environment was safe. Um, so that's a sort of an interesting theory. Um, how, uh, and then eventually what happens is once, once you've sort of, you know, situated your, your environment, um, that, that circadian rhythm takes a dip, melatonin starts to secrete around that time. Um, and then at its lowest, the circadian rhythm, um, will sort of intersect with your sleep pressure being at its highest. And those two things together are kind of what help people go to sleep. Um, and then even throughout the night, obviously still like this is a 24 plus hour process. So, um, you can then sort of track, uh, your circadian rhythm and in, in the form of it sort of being low throughout the night, uh, melatonin secretion being at its highest. And again, that sort of follows core body temperature. So what's kind of interesting is that your core body temperature is coldest or lowest in the middle of the night, but then starts waking or starts uh, going up one to three hours before you wake up. Um, so then allowing that circadian alerting signal to sort of, you know, begin to build. And that's why most of us, frankly, uh, if we follow any sort of regular sleep schedule, we'll wake up before our alarm goes off. And that's because you're alerting, your circadian alerting signals waking you up. That's the... Uh people need to go hit that back button like for 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds, go back, listen to that. So you understand the sleep process that is as good as it's going to get without taking a formal, getting some formal education on this stuff. So go back, re-listen to that. And then when you're ready, you can continue the rest of the podcast. <laughs> that, was that was excellent. That was excellent. Um, okay. So we've talked about uh, what is sleep, the structure of it processes that contribute to like this need or drive as Austin like says drive to sleep uh the nitty-gritty the big question is well how much do i need i you know you look at the, yeah. the national sleep foundation they have this like cute chart you know it goes from like newborn all the way to older adult and effectively once you get into this uh like 18 years old and and over they're talking about seven to eight seven to nine hours of sleep on average for most individuals with some wiggle room on on either end meaning some people need maybe a little less and some people need a little more um and you kind of alluded to this earlier like if someone's not having problems in their day-to-day -day function they're not having you know excessive daytime sleepiness or compromised performance at their you know, the job or in relationships or whatever, this again, sounds very like DSM five, like psychiatry kind of diagnosis, <laughs> then maybe they're fine. But do you find that people don't have a lot of insight into that? Meaning that people who are like regularly sleep deprived and performing under where they should be, they just don't know like, Hey, yeah, you're actually, you're actually underperforming. They just think this is life. This is what it's supposed to be like. You find that pretty frequently. Yeah, I do. And that's, that's probably even more commonly seen in, um, the patients that we identify with sleep disordered breathing. So like, it's very interesting. I, on a, 
I should, I wish I had kept track of the number of times I've had patients come back and tell me like, man, like I have no idea for the last, uh, 20 some years or 30 some years of my life, how I even was sleeping without, you know, this breathing machine or sleeping with, without, uh, treating my condition. And you sometimes get that in patients who, um, have insomnia too. You know, they, they start to sort of recognize how, how much of a difference, um, they're getting in terms of their daytime function when you start to improve their sleep. Um, it's, it's like night and day for some, uh, sleep apnea patients for, for some insomnia patients, they tend to, you know, over time become conditioned to sort of just operating at that level of sleep deprivation. Um, and those tend to be a little bit more challenging cases. Uh, but, uh, you're absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like some people have no idea until you sort of remove the blinders from them. And then, um, it, it can definitely make a positive impact. Um, you just have to really, uh, work with your patients uh, on an individual basis. Uh, I, I wish that there were sort of broad like brushes that we could sort of paint this picture for most people out there, but it tends to be something that that t- needs to be a little bit more individualized. And you, you know, you mentioned the National Sleep Foundation. I think I think the National Sleep Foundation is great. Um, they have a really good website. I think we should link that for our uh, listeners uh, because they they go into detail as, as to a lot of different sleeping um, conditions and or um, reasons why sleep is important, but I, I absolutely agree with you. It's very, it's hard to say that um, everybody needs to adhere to the sort of guidance and or recommendations that are pointed out. Um, I think it's just too much of an individual call. Um, and uh, I don't know that I necessarily 100% agree right now. Sure. So how would you, if somebody asked you, Dr. Gordon, how much sleep do I need per night? How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's a good question. I usually, I usually will come back at them with, a, I mean, it not, not to be like quick or too cute to the point, but basically it, it just depends on, on you. Um, and that's, it, it that's usually where we kind of go back to the beginning and we kind of ask the individual, like, um, what brings you to my office today? Like, what things are we trying to accomplish? Uh, and what things can we, how could we improve your life? And notice how I didn't like I'm not specifying how can I improve your sleep. I'm trying to figure out what's going on in your life that you think sleep may or may not have a role in. So uh, I I tell everybody there's no strict like rule. Uh, There are norms. Most people tend to fall within those norms, but um, it's just highly individual. Gotcha. So there's not one weird trick for telling people how much sleep they need. And, and it does, it does sound like, you know, that the amount that not only is there not one amount for each person, but even within the individual, this is likely to vary, um, maybe over, over time, depending on the time scale you're looking at. And I'm curious, you know, you could talk a little bit about maybe some of the changes that tend to happen as people get older. Cause obviously we work with a lot of uh, older population and we hear a lot about kind of the, their experiences with respect to sleep and training and life and things like that in general. So what, what's the current thinking in the sleep medicine world as far as kind of what, ha, what uh, changes are happening across the lifespan uh, on this front with, the, with respect to sleep quantity and quality? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. This is something that's been sort of revisited. Um, it was, it was initially sort of studied um, and the thought process was that older patients in general um, uh, and, and, 
Okay, so let's define that because that's kind of hard to define. Um, in sleep medicine, in general, older patients in quotations is somewhere between 55 and 65 years old. So, you know, those of those of our listeners who are falling within that range don't take that as like a jab or anything. That's just, you know, sort of how the sleep medicine literature sort of ca- categorize people. But uh, basically, uh, folks falling, you know, somewhere right of 55 to 65 years old are considered older adults. And sort of traditionally what has been thought of is that um, those those folks experience more um, lighter stages of sleep, so N1, N2, and tend to experience um, less of that N3 sleep. Um, and that's thought to be due to like uh, a multitude of things. So we, we, you know, you guys reference a lot the the biopsychosocial model and a lot of that may play a role here. So, you know, these individuals have a higher incidence of medical and or, uh, you know, psychiatric conditions. Um, they tend to, you know, they experience a lot of role uh, transitions, meaning that these folks are, you know, as opposed to a 16 year old who is, is attending school and sort of playing sports and that's sort of their responsibility. Um, older individuals have a lot more sort of stuff going on in terms of their, their individual roles within their, you know, their li- personal lives their families and or society. So, um, it's thought that those, those things contribute to them experiencing less N3 sleep. Um, in sort of more recent data, uh, I'd have to sort of look it up again, but I've, I've also sort of seen that that's coming into question now. Maybe they don't necessarily experience um, that much less N3 sleep, or maybe it's not a significant amount, but I've definitely had my patients sort of report to me that um, they, they feel like over time and over the years, they've experienced less quality uh, or less high quality sleep. If, uh, if that, you know, pertains to N3 sleep, we don't know. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's like I said, it, it tends to be more of an individual thing. Um, it's also interesting. There's some data out there that would suggest that, you know, these older individuals who may be experiencing less N3 sleep are less, um, susceptible to feeling, uh, the effects, I guess, of having that reduced, uh, high quality or N3 sleep. So it's it's kind of all over the board. So it may be it may be that would suggest that it may be physiologic, i.e., not a real significant problem if they are less susceptible to that change. Right. Kind of like we see changes in certain hormone levels across the lifespan, be it thyroid or testosterone or something, and it's not necessarily clearly associated with with uh, symptoms or or reduced uh, you know increased risk of more of uh, disease or death. So it may just be a physiologic thing. So it's a little a little tricky. Yeah, exactly. For sure, makes some sense. But I'm sure in 15 to 20 years, we'll be like, oh, man, we're so dumb. I know. <laughs> yeah. which, which is fine. You just got to update your priors. The worst thing you can do yeah. is just keep saying the same thing over and over again, despite <laughs> overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Okay, moving on. So we talked about why we sleep, structure of sleep, what makes us go to sleep, and then like how much we may or may not need, depending on the being an individual in different contexts, etc. Let's start talking about some sort of practical slash clinical type uh, applications here. So first off, somebody says, Dr. Gordon, all right, you're the sleep guru. What do I, what should I start doing at home right now to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success as far as getting the best quality sleep that I can? I think you would start with sleep hygiene, which we talk, we say that phrase all the time. And I think now looking back, I wish that every time I said that phrase, I would actually define it and say exactly what 
you know, is considered to, to relate to sleep hygiene. Cause I think people are just like, okay, I know what dental hygiene is. You just like brush your teeth and floss. Like what is the toothbrushing and the flossing for sleep? What, what falls in this category? Yeah, that's a, you bring up a really good point. Cause what's interesting about sleep hygiene is in general, it's classically, um, when you look at sort of the clinical trials that assess for treatments for things like insomnia, sleep hygiene is usually actually the control. Um, but then when you look in the details of those studies, sleep hygiene isn't always either well-defined or if it is, it's sort of not uh, congruent, uh, you know, exclusively across the board. So I'll tell you what I think my version of sleep hygiene is and sort of what I think, what I would consider sort of to be basic things that um, all individuals should, should at least to some degree keep in mind. And, and sort of what I tell my patients, particularly those who I'm treating for insomnia, um, is that sleep hygiene is one of those things that, um, it's, it's the, the most basic level of, uh, thing behaviors that may influence your sleep. So if you're not doing these things, you're sort of setting yourself up to, for an uphill battle potentially. So sort of common things, um, that we talk about are uh, environmental factors that can influence your sleep. And that's sort of the primary sort of basis of sleep hygiene. So things like uh, making sure you have a comfortable mattress to sleep on and that you have a safe environment to sleep in and that you're not, um, you know, keeping the bright beaming lights in your, you know, in your house on um, when you're trying to go to sleep at night. Um, temperature is an interesting one that a lot of people, uh, will overlook. Uh, so as I sort of mentioned, you know, based on your circadian rhythm, which follows a core body temperature, you can negatively influence your ability to go to sleep. If you're trying to go to sleep with your thermostat set to 85 degrees, um, you know, that's all relative, that's relative to the individual, right? If you're someone who runs cold, I guess, then maybe having it a little bit higher, but in general, we would app we would, uh, ask most individuals to set their thermostat somewhere between 67 and 70 degrees, uh, at a max, um, improper sort of, uh, activities, uh, around sleep. Some of this kind of makes sense. Um, so if you were to use caffeine, uh, just before going to bed, it would make sense that you might have some difficulty with going to sleep, uh, shortly after nicotine like caffeine is also a stimulating substance. So for our, those of, uh, our listeners or those patients who are tobacco users, definitely it's uh, nicotine is something that can negatively influence uh, your sleep because it's a stimulating type of, uh, uh, you know, drug, if you will. You know, I, I get a lot of, I ask the question, when is your last cigarette of the night? And they usually tell me just before I go to sleep. And that's counterintuitive because it's a stimulating, it has a stimulating effect. So, you know, generally speaking, sort of, again, we're thinking baseline recommendations, thing, low hanging fruit that we can try to adjust. I would advise that being removed from around the bedtime and then and then alcohol so alcohol is a common sort of commonly used uh, uh, sleep aid it helps reduce um, the time it takes for you to go to sleep uh, there's no doubt about that but the issue with alcohol is is it, number one it sort of it negatively impacts your um, well to say that it's negative is hard to to make that comment, but it, it impacts your sleep architecture by basically suppressing all of your REM sleep. So you don't, you, people who drink a lot or have, uh, you know, a binge type night might experience, um, a longer, crazy, 
uh, more elaborate dream that they end up waking up from. And that's because they're sort of pushing all of that REM sleep towards the, the last portion of their sleeping period. Um, and then as alcohol starts to metabolize, people tend to wake up. So that's why alcohol is not um, a great sleep aid and is included in that sleep hygiene sort of discussion. Uh, and then sort of other common things that we'll talk about, um, people who exercise just before sleep or just before trying to go to sleep. Um, if it's a particularly hard workout, like if you're doing an RPE 10 type workout, you're, you're probably not going to sleep that well, you know, if you do it right before you hop into bed. Um, so in general, I think the convention is somewhere on the realm of like three, four hours before bedtime. I think that you can play around with that depending on the intensity of the workout. And, you know, this, this listens, lists, group of listeners, I'm sure would appreciate that. Um, and then eating. So food is actually kind of like light. It's considered a, what's called a Zeitgeber or a, uh, an influencer of the, uh, the circadian rhythm. So ideally you're, you're having an earlier dinner, um, and giving yourself a couple of hours before you try to go to sleep. And that's kind of the gist of sleep hygiene. I mean, those are baseline things that I would recommend for all individuals to consider looking at. And what's well, the evidence on sleep hygiene overall, if you had to wrap it up? Yeah, it's uh, so sleep hygiene for patients who have uh, who have who meet the criteria for chronic insomnia or insomnia, like even acutely is it's not it's not good enough. Generally speaking, um, you have to do a little bit more than sleep hygiene. So. For those listeners out there who either get a handout on sleep hygiene or for those who are practicing um, in clinic um, and you're giving your patients sort of a, you know, either sleep hygiene handout or a talk, um, that may not be enough. Uh, and the, the evidence, uh, you know, at the moment is a, is a weak against um, strictly using sleep hygiene as, a, as the only form of intervention. Interesting. Yeah, because most people say, yeah, just do this and you'll be you'll be fine, you know, as far as people not actually practicing sleep medicine. So that uh, should be noted. And if I can add, I'll add one more thing to that. So it's potentially harmful too. I, this is something that I, uh, it makes sense when you think about it now. Um, if you give somebody, like, let's say you have a discussion about sleep hygiene with somebody and they have chronic insomnia and they go home, they do these things and then they continue to have insomnia. Well, we're, we're potentially harming those patients because what's happening is, is, Effectively, you're you're giving them information to modify their behaviors, but the problem is is that if the patient does these things, it doesn't get better. Well, then what's the likelihood of them taking on more recommendations to change their behavior? Um, so you know we we haven't touched on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is evidence uh, supported and recommended for first line treatment of insomnia, but. You could potentially harm a patient who has insomnia by saying, here's some sleep hygiene, go for it, uh, good luck. And then the patient does it and then becomes, you know, disgruntled or upset about not getting better. And then you potentially have closed that door to that patient sort of changing their behaviors via cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's potentially harmful. Yeah, it's effectively, they're, they're more resistant to doing some of the other things that they also view as either being ineffectual, like just they just don't work because the sleep hygiene thing didn't work, or they think they're already doing enough with the sleep hygiene. So double-edged kind of sword there. Um, okay. So I think it's important now, there are two like major diagnoses that I think, like clinical diagnoses that that uh, we see all the time, um, particularly in 
North America, and then just are the people who we interact with on a regular basis. And those are insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. So let's start off here with insomnia. If you had to define insomnia to a patient, explain it to a patient, what would you say this is? Yeah. So um, in a nutshell, it's basically um, difficulty with initiating sleep or maintaining sleep um, or both um, for uh, in, in terms of uh, chronic insomnia for greater than three months. Uh, in terms of acute insomnia, it's the opposite. It's for a period of less than three months. And that's usually, you know, three or more nights a week. Um, super common thing that we see, particularly, I mean, obviously in sleep medicine, but definitely even when I'm doing primary care, I see probably, I'd say a third of my patients are complaining of this, this, uh, this condition. Yeah. It's got, uh, obviously a lot of people in North America, I think it's like something like 20 to 30% yeah, of adults in North America. And you, you can have it short term or chronic. So short term being like less than three months, chronic being usually greater than that. Um, when you diagnose this, are you using like questionnaires, like the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index or something like that? Or are you using a different sort of screening tool or diagnostic tool? Like how, how are you diagnosing this in the clinic? Yeah, so it's usually, um, I'm usually talking to the person and just sort of asking about what their sleep is like. I'm usually doing um, an insomnia severity uh, questionnaire. Uh, it's otherwise known as the ISI. Um, but the, the Pittsburgh one is also a good one to uh, sort of establish um, how the patient feels their quality of sleep is. And sometimes that's hard to put into words. So um, those are all like the ISI and the PSQI are both validated um, screening questionnaires that we use frequently uh, when, we're, when we're talking to patients about insomnia. And then what are you, I guess when you're also diagnosing this, you're trying to make sure it's not something else that's not mm -hmm. actually insomnia. So like an example would be like, you don't have enough opportunity to sleep. For example, like literally you're going to bed at midnight and you got to be up at 4.30. Like that's not insomnia. You're just, it's a short sleep duration, for example, sleep insufficiency. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's probably in the, in my patient population that I'm seeing regularly in, in this area. That's, that's probably one of the more common things. The other the other one um, that a lot of people that will trip up a lot of people is um, circadian um, derangement. So, say a patient's circadian rhythm is shifted to the right, meaning their um, their circadian rhythm is delayed, so they're more likely to have their circadian rhythm drop off later in the evening. Um, that's someone then who is more likely to go to sleep later and therefore wake up later. Uh, but that's not always congruent with uh, their lifestyle. So then then it's perceived as well, you know, I'm trying to go to sleep earlier so I can wake up earlier, but I can't. Well, it turns out that maybe it's not so much insomnia as much as it is something called delayed uh, circadian preference. Um, so that's, you know, the, that's, that's sort of a, a little bit of a little bit more of a nuanced, uh, not to throw that word out, but <laughs> a little bit more uh, approach that I'd say uh, is specific to a, like a sleep medicine evaluation. Uh, because by and large, the majority of people who are complaining of insomnia probably have a degree of it. Yeah. Yeah. People come to you, they, they're obviously having some daytime, excessive daytime fatigue or compromise in their ability to like participate in all the things they want to. And so they're thinking, hey, I might have this sleep problem. And yeah, just given this, the numbers, common things being common, you're probably going probably gonna to have something there. Um, okay. So you've effectively diagnosed somebody as having insomnia. It's not, again, that they just don't have a 
lack of ability to sleep, meaning just like actual time, or that they have like a sleep phase disorder where they're really a night owl, but they have to wake up super early every morning to go to work or vice versa. They have to like, they work really, really late, but they'd rather go to bed early and then wake up super early. So it's not any of that. It's insomnia, bread and butter. What sort of things are, or how are you treating this, managing this? Is it like a stepwise thing or is it just super individualized based on the person or both, I guess? It's, yeah, it's a little, it's definitely a little bit of both. Um, it's helpful to have when you're, when you're talking to someone to have a pretty good sense as to how long it's been going on. So just, just your basic like history and physical type stuff. So how long it's been going on, was there a trigger or are there any associated sort of stressors that you can identify that may be contributing, um, what their past medical history is. That's definitely an important thing. So let's say like you've got a patient who has a history of ADHD, and they're taking um, their stimulant medication and they've recently sort of increased their their stimulant use or they're maybe they're taking it the wrong way or they're taking it a little too late in the day. Like common things like that, you know, looking at their medicine lists and seeing is there something on there other than, you know, obvious things like stimulants um, that could be contributing. Um, beta blockers are a common one that people don't think about um, that can negatively uh, impact sleep and predispose someone to insomnia. Um, certain antidepressants are more stimulating than others and can be contributing. I mean, the laundry list goes on. So it's kind of one of those things that you would want to look at all of those factors. And then once you sort of, again, ruled out any confounders, um, if it's just purely behavioral type insomnia, then, I mean, the first thing that I usually start with is, is education. Um, so let's say you have the time of day to, to do that, you might then talk about some of those things that we talked about earlier, process C and process S, just so that the person understands why it's important for them to build up enough sleep drive, as Austin would point out, um, to, to, to get sleepy enough to go to sleep at night. Um, we would talk about the circadian rhythm and sort of environmental influences of that um, to help the person understand that perhaps having dimly lit um, a dimly lit house uh, for the last couple hours of their night may be a positive uh, thing to do. And then um, then we'll, you know, typically uh, recommend uh, if the patient is agreeable to it, um, something called cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so CBTI, we'll just, uh, you know, call it that from, for the remainder of the podcast is, is something that is evidence supported. Um, it's the primary sort of recommendation, if you go to all of the sleep, um, all the organizations that be that sort of make uh, these guidelines, CBTI is sort of the go-to. And and frankly, not everybody is trained in CBTI. And it's it's not it's not to say that it's super hard to learn how to do with patients. It's just it can be time consuming. It's a, something that requires multiple sessions, can require up to six to eight weeks of you seeing somebody who's trained in it. Uh, uh, for periods of, you know, between every two to four weeks, you check in with somebody and you're, what you're basically doing is you're making micro adjustments to um, something very uh, personal, the person's nighttime behavior, and doing a couple of things that we can specify um, in a little bit. But that that's how I would approach it. Now, if you're a primary care doctor, or you're seeing your primary care doctor, and you're complaining of insomnia, then you know, once you, like I said, have identified that this is purely insomnia and you want to get help, my recommendation is, is you, you talk to somebody about getting in with uh, a provider who can, who can perform CBTI. 
Um, and this is something that I would, I would, you know, consider a worthwhile investment, uh, either your time and or your money. Um, uh, because, you know, if you're not sleeping, this is, this is what's been shown to be the most effective in terms of long-term treatment. I know there may not be direct evidence on this, but I know that I've seen, uh, several like web-based CBTI services for people. Cause I've had patients who are in areas where they don't have local access to one. Uh, can you speak to that at all? What anything you know about any of those services? We don't have to name anyone in particular, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's worth saying, and I, it's probably easier to say, say it than it is to achieve it, but CBTI is definitely important. And unfortunately there just aren't a ton of people who are doing it. Um, but as far as online delivery, so there are some, there are some studies out there that have demonstrated that the online uh, delivery form of CBTI is effective. And then there are other, so like, for example, we, you, all of us have sort of been talking about the recent uh, VA DOD guidelines that were just released on the management of chronic insomnia and uh, sleep apnea. And they touch on this and what they sort of demonstrated when they reviewed the literature is that there isn't a, there isn't enough evidence to uh, strictly say like, yes, we 100% would support replacing face-to-face CBT with um, telehealth delivery CBTI. But there are some decent studies out there that would support it. And Frankly, if I had a patient who didn't have access to a provider that could give them CBTI, that would be sort of my next in line recommendation. Uh, to be clear, you're saying CBT, not to be confused with CBD, which has no role in <laughs> insomnia. To be clear, to yeah, be clear. That, that's a whole another. That's a whole another conversation. Don't open that bag of words. Well, and I have to say this because. Um, you know, it's the internet and sometimes the audio, you know, people are like, it's CBD, CBT. And, and honestly, people may, people mistake up like, you know, more egregiously unrelated things than that. So for example, Corona, the, the alcohol, the beer <laughs> has taken an 11% market hit ever since the coronavirus has been getting play in the media. Uh, they're unrelated. And I'm just saying, if people can make that link, people are going to make the link between CBT and CBD. And they're, again, I cannot stress this enough, unrelated. One is the primary management tool for insomnia. The other one has no effect on insomnia, uh, despite despite what the person shilling the CBD uh, discount code in bio may lead you to believe. Uh, Baraki, have you ever had uh, insomnia? Uh, acute insomnia, sure, yeah, for short for short periods of time during surrounding periods of uh, you know profound life stressors, absolutely. And so, yeah, and I, I think it, Nate and, and Nate, I think you would agree with this. Most adults, if not um, nearly all adults, will go through will have some insomnia, you know, in a given year or p- whatever period of time you want to you know stretch this out to. Will experience this. The point at which you kind of like make this leap to needing like medical management, and I don't mean necessarily medication, but actually like CBT or actually just see your doctor to, to kind of evaluate this and, and get a handle on it is, is when it's causing you profound, you know, problems in, in your life that are sustained, you know, not just one night or two nights or three nights or even a week of like, man, I'm having a tough time going to sleep, staying asleep, and I'm having some daytime fatigue. Like, you know, that's it's like, it's like back pain. Correct. Correct. It's it's yeah. very similar. It's very similar in a way. So it, do you have a cutoff, like a cut point where you're like, hey, if you've been having some insomnia or what you think is insomnia for X amount of time or like that's when you should, 
you know, most likely see a doctor? Or, uh, uh, do you think it's just more subjective than that? If it's getting in the chronic insomnia realm, which would be like going on three months or greater, I, I would highly recommend um, if there are not other things going on in your life that require prioritizing, I would prioritize this. And, and the reason why is because there's some good evidence that would suggest that um, over time, uh, I think I mentioned this, people will become conditioned to that sleep deprived state and uh, become conditioned to um, being insomniacs. And the problem with that is um, those, those individuals tend to be less, can be less uh, sensitive to sleep drive and sleep pressure, um, which is one of the primary forms of sort of like in CBTI, we, we're often using sleep pressure as a, as a way to improve someone's um, sleep uh, and to treat their insomnia. And if for several months and or years, you've, you know, not had that addressed and you've become accustomed to it, you're looking at what may be a little bit of a, more of an uphill battle as compared to somebody who, you know, is experiencing insomnia over the last couple of weeks because they have a big test coming up or they have some other sort of external stressor that's, that's affecting their sleep. Got it. That's good advice. Um, okay. Now, second most common uh, thing that we run into with respect to sort of sleep disorders, it's got to be obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I've told my story of how I got diagnosed with this a million times. So if you listen to any of our <laughs> other podcasts where the word sleep apnea like appears in the keywords, you can hear, listen to it there. I'm not going to bore you guys with that. But the funny thing is it's contagious because I gave it to Austin. So Austin's got it too. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first cases of infectious obstructive sleep apnea. No. Uh, also not true. But um, yeah, so obstructive sleep apnea. Again, if you had to give people a sort of lay uh, uh, definition of this, how would you define it, uh, Dr. Gordon? Yeah, so I talk about this a lot in my clinic and I think um, – I agree. Like the, the lay sort of description should basically be, um, sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, particularly in a nutshell is at night, when you go to sleep, your muscles relax to a certain degree. Um, I think we could all sort of agree with that statement. Um, well, it turns out the, the muscles of your upper airway, um, also relax. So your tongue and your neck, um, can relax to a degree in which you either have a reduction of your breathing or um, an inability to maintain uh, an open airway. Um, effectively sort of choking in your sleep is how I describe it to patients. And um, it's, it's one of those things that uh, there are varying degrees of severity, uh, but the way, that, the way that it negatively impacts your sleep is, is that as you progress into sort of deeper stages of sleep, particularly when you get into a REM sleep, um, as we talked about, your, your body tends to be more re relaxed and or paralyzed. And uh, sleep apnea or those number of uh, abnormal uh, uh, difficulty with breathing events occurs uh, more frequently. Um, so what that does in turn is, is it sort of, you know, as you start to um, not be able to breathe your brain, uh, and your lungs receive less air and therefore your brain receives less oxygen and you start to wake up. Um, so you're effectively, as you're getting into these deeper stages of sleep, your body then starts to choke itself and sort of pulls yourself out of those deeper stages so that you're either awake or you're in those lighter stages of sleep when you're less likely to have, um, sleep apnea occurring. Yeah. And that happens a certain number of times, um, 
over the course of the evening or the course of your sleeping period. Yeah. So it's like a, a respiratory effort related arousal effectively. Like you just, you can't keep the oxygen at the level it needs to be when your muscles are relaxed. And then you, in order to like get that, the oxygen up, you got to wake up a little bit. So, and that's yep. keeps you out of those yep. deep stages of sleep. So when you're diagnosing this um, in general, there's like two main types of tests. You can go to a sleep lab and they, you know, hook you up to a bunch of different sensors and, you know, oxygen monitors and such, et cetera. Or you could do it at home. Um, it's a typical home sleep study. Do you have a preference? Is there like a, you know, what are these, are they actually monitoring? And then um, do you, do you recommend one over the other uh, in any particular situation? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, um, so I don't know that I would recommend one versus the other, uh, but to, we can get into sort of the specifics. So with an in-lab sleep study, effectively what you're getting is you're getting um, monitoring oxygen levels with a pulse ox, you're getting um, monitoring of your heart with a, like a simple, like one lead or two lead EKG, you're getting um, uh, airflow and or, um, uh, in, in two forms of different measurements, um, you're getting brainwave activity so we can monitor when the person's asleep and then when the person's starting to wake up or has like a respiratory type of event um, that we, you know, discuss that then causes them to wake up. Um, uh, we have some belts that will sit over your chest and your abdomen to tell us if you're if there was an effort during that, uh, those respiratory events. And then we have some extra leads, um, to monitor things like arms and leg movement. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a lot of, of information that the, the sleep, uh, an in-lab sleep study is getting. And what's helpful for that is you're getting a lot more information, you know, is the person waking up, uh, because they're having a, a reduction in their breathing that's not accompanied by a reduction in their oxygen level. Like that's a thing, you know, um, and that and that can cause sleep disruption. So so you get more information with the in lab, the at home study, which may be a little bit more um, uh, easy to for the patient at least to sleep, involves fewer leads. It's basically sort of it, generally speaking, it's most of the things that we talked about, with the exception of the eye and brain um, monitoring that we talked about. So all the oxygen, um, the breathing functions that we talked about. Um, position is there. And then, you know, because we can't tell when the person's asleep or not, we, we rely on the person telling us, okay, I went to bed at this time and fell asleep at this time. And I woke up at this time. Um, I think for the most part, if you're, if you're concerned that you have sleep apnea, which I, th I think we'll probably talk about screening, um, in a bit, um, I think a home sleep test is a, is a fine opening, uh, initial type of test. Um, but the, the convention should be understood that because it's um, going to pick up fewer individuals, since we're missing some of those, those other uh, inputs, um, that if you have a negative sleep study and you still suspect that you may have sleep apnea, then my recommendation would be is you either repeat that um, home sleep test or you, uh, the ideal alternative would be is you get a, an in-lab sleep test to, to follow. Yeah. I mean, when you're trying to figure out or, or, or determine who would be eligible for this. Uh, if they weren't, didn't come see you in the office where you didn't get to like do an exam and look at them and ask them a bunch of questions, uh, what sort of risk factors are you like think that, uh, are predictive here? You know, so people at home who may not necessarily 
had been thinking that maybe I have sleep apnea, even though it's super common. We're talking like almost a billion people worldwide have sleep apnea. Okay. So what sort of like uh, traits, characteristics, or other risk factors would you um, sort of put together as sort of like this screening tool um, that you might use? And where, where would people go for that? Yeah, definitely. So you guys have mentioned um, quite a few times during your uh, seminars and prior um, uh, material, the stop bang screening questionnaire. And that's, that's a good starting point. So, you know, like the, we'll run through the mnemonic, but essentially are, you know, if you're a snorer, if you snore loudly, if your bed partner, you know, hates sleeping next to you or has to sleep in another room because you snore really loudly, that's a positive, you know, S there. If you're tired during the day or you feel fatigued or you're sleepy or you're falling asleep at inappropriate times, that's, that's the T and that, that might be, you know, that's a positive indicator there. Um, the O is for if you've, if you've been observed, uh, whether you're stopping breathing or not, and that would be, um, you know, you're, you'd have to have a bed partner to tell you that. Um, but if you've woken up, you know, gasping or choking, it's possible that, you know, that might, that might be representative of a, an apneic event. Um, the P and stop is uh, pressure. So if you're someone who has high blood pressure, we, we have, um, pretty decent data su to suggest that um, the surge of uh, fight or flight hormones that occur when someone's choking uh, during a, during sleep apnea is associated with an increase in um, uh, systolic uh, blood pressure. And as a result of that, if you have high blood pressure, that might be a risk factor and you may have um, sleep apnea. Um, I'll, I'll pause for a second. And I'll say that those individuals who test positive, uh, like two out of those four criteria right there are looking at higher risk of sleep apnea anyway. And we haven't even talked about the second half of the screening questionnaire, yeah. um, but that's a validated, just that itself is validated for screening for sleep apnea. Yeah. I think if you have two, um, if you answer yes to two of those questions or whatever, you're, it's like a two, twofold increase in risk of sleep mm -hmm. apnea. And then if you up to like four, so you've answered, you know, most of those questions, oh yeah, that's me. It's three and a half fold or threefold. It's like, it just keeps going. It's like, so again, this is very common just as a, a baseline. And then if you start answering yes to these questions, uh, probably on that road to like, maybe, maybe needing to get tested. Yeah. And then, and then to finish it out. So like, it, you know, before the, uh, you know, we mentioned the bang, stop bang piece. So, you know, if your body mass index is greater than 35, which a lot of our listeners who, train, you know, that may, they may fall into that category. You know, this doesn't take into account like waist circumference or stuff like that, but that's certainly, a, you know, something to consider if your age is greater than 50. So we just know that older individuals, um, their upper airways are comprised more of fat, fat, fatty tissues, as opposed to muscle tissues. And as a result of that, they're at higher risk of, uh, sleep apnea. So age greater than 50, is the A. Um, for the N, it's, is, do you have a large neck circumference? So for males, that'd be greater than 17 inches. Uh, and for females, that'd be greater than 16 inches. And then if you're the last uh, G is for gender for male. So, uh, you know, until post until a woman's postmenopausal, um, a man is always going to have a higher risk of um, sleep apnea um, at any given age. Um, so that's, that's the stop bang questionnaire in a nutshell. And you can just Google that, um, and take it yourself. And if, if you pop positive or if you're elevated, I would talk to your doctor about it. Yeah. It's worth, worth getting screened for particularly. And again, if you, if you are never fatigued during the day, like it just doesn't happen to you outside of just, you know, once in a blue moon, 
then why are you listening to this podcast? It's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 yeah, if somebody came into my office and said, yeah, look, I'm, you know, I got two risk factors for sleep apnea. I'm wondering if I have it, uh, you know, and then the first question I would ask them, are, you know, are you tired during the day? And then I'd characterize, you know, how often and what do they mean by that and everything else. And I said, no, never. I'm like, I don't know that I need that we need to like screen you for this, um, you know, unless there was some other reason they had uh, high blood pressure or, you know, another condition that I thought would be uh, or obesity or something, something else that was like predisposing me to, to work that up. But any, in any event, yeah, that think that's, that's good advice. Um, Baraki, you're, you're on the CPAP now. Uh, yes, I am. Uh, technically, I think it's an auto uh, pap machine, but yes, we can. We'll we'll get to those machines. I've been on it for I don't know, maybe a little over a year now. And you can yeah. kind of get used to it up front, but yeah, works fine. Yeah, yeah, we're like we're we're like big CPAP shills here. We're just you know <laughs> sh- 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 shilling shilling for those appliances. All right, so so you have somebody that you've diagnosed uh, with sleep apnea after one of the, either the home sleep study or the sleep lab. Um, where do you kind of start with management? Cause we just jumped right into, you know, the oral apply, the sleep, the uh, CPAP, um, uh, which is continuous positive airway pressure. There's a couple different flavors of that. Do you start with anything before that or you just, you jump right to that uh, in most cases? Uh, so it depends, depends on a couple of things, depends on the patient's symptoms. Um, so like you said, if I, I, you know, I, I see a lot of people who, test positive for sleep apnea, but aren't overly symptomatic during the day, I might, you know, try providing them with some education and maybe asking them if they're overweight to, uh, you know, consider assessing that as a, as a feasible lifestyle intervention. Um, maybe avoiding things that could potentially worsen sleep apnea. So things like alcohol, um, uh, can cause worsening sleep apnea due to, um, the upper airway tone sort of being affected by that. Um, and then, you know, if, if I have someone who, if I have someone who has mild sleep apnea, I'm going to offer them the opportunity to try, um, positive airway pressure, uh, CPAP, uh, or, uh, another thing called an oral appliance, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, if they're symptomatic, if the person's sleepy, then, you know, the, they're, the worst thing that could happen is, is that I say, yeah, it's mild sleep apnea. You're good. Just, you know, try, try getting a little bit more sleep. And then, you know, the person continues having a terrible life or, you know, or worse, they fall asleep like an inter- at an inappropriate time. So I'm definitely always open to giving folks a trial. Um, uh, it, you can go either way when it comes to mild to moderate sleep apnea. So mild being somewhere on the realm of uh, five uh, abnormal bre- breathing events per hour to about 15. Um, and then 15 to 30 is the moderate range. And there's evidence to support that if somebody um, has a lot of those episodes occurring when they're on their back um, and they're still only in the moderate um, category, that they may benefit from um, a, a device called a mandibular advancement device or an oral appliance. And effectively what that does is that sort of just pulls the jaw forward ever so slightly to pull those, you know, uh, neck tissues anteriorly and, and, and therefore reducing the incidence of incidence, uh, of abnormal breathing events. Contrary, uh, contrast that with positive airway pressure, as its name implies a constant pressure or in Austin's case, uh, a varying pressure, depending on sort of what the machine is interpreting, um, 
uh, effectively, you have a constant pressure of airflow that's keeping the airway propped open. So sort of like a pneumatic splint is how we would describe it. And therefore reducing those instances of the airway collapsing and sort of the person not breathing at all, preventing apneas or preventing the person even from snoring, um, which happens uh, when the airway narrows to a certain degree. So either of those options are solid options. Now, what about the person who's like, hey, look, Nate, I don't snore. No one's told me that I snore. Um, yeah, I'm tired sometimes, but not not frequently. I meet some of these criteria, uh, I guess. But, uh, you know, honestly, when I, when I drink, anytime I have, a, you know, I go out with my buddies and I have, you know, a few drinks, man, the next day I'm just – wrecked. And I think that I, I'm just hung over, you know, cause I feel so bad in the morning, but I really don't drink that much. Um, is there anything related to sleep apnea there? Yeah. So that person might be sort of teetering on the realm of uh, borderline sleep apnea, or they may very well have mild sleep apnea. And it's just not really all that apparent until they number one, um, have more obstructive events relating to their alcohol intake, or number two, they get lower quality sleep as a result of their alcohol intake, therefore sort of making them feel the effects of their, you know, sleep apnea a little bit more the next day. So either way, I'd I'd probably, if a person presented with those complaints, I probably would refer them still to to be assessed for sleep apnea. Yeah. And and I think the way I understand with alcohol, uh, one, uh, people, it alters the sleep architecture. Two, it, uh, people tend to sleep in abnormal postures compared to where they normally sleep. So for example, um, I never used to sleep on my back ever because I would just be apneic. (laughs) And so the way I dealt with that (laughs) was to never sleep on my back. But when I would drink, uh, like in college and and in med school, because I don't do that anymore since I'm a responsible adult, um, I would just sleep on my back and it would be, you know, terrible. Uh, And so when I actually did my sleep study, I had to sleep on my back and, uh, yeah, that was, I think they found out very early on in that sleep study that I was, I had some, some pretty substantial apnea. So between the abnormal postures and then also can be an additional like muscle relaxant where the strap muscles of the neck, maybe even a little bit less tone than they normally have. Cause you're, uh, wasted. Um, yeah, can't contribute any, any other common medications that you see do similar sort of things? Um, opioids are a big one. Uh, What's interesting about opioids, though, is that they, instead of them sort of contributing to strictly obstructive apneas, they can also contribute to central apneas. So that's why, you know, we have with the within the the realm of this this big opioid epidemic, people across the country are are dying from opioid overdoses. The you know the, the main reason why they're they're dying is because their brain is no longer uh, being told that it should it should breathe, and those are called central apneas. Um, that's something that we commonly um, see uh, here in Colorado Springs. You know, I'm not not people dying, but I see a lot of central apneas because of altitude. So, um, the uh, the that's definitely a contributor. Um, other medicines that can cause um, relaxation uh, to uh, in excess, uh, if, especially if they're used in excess. Um, potentially uh, things like benzodiazepines uh, and or other muscle relaxants, but the big one um, is thought to be from opioids. Nice. Good. All right. Look, I've got a rapid fire question for you guys all pertaining to sleep. Nate, you've been awesome on this so far, and now I'm going to try to trip you up. 
but you don't have to trip up on your own. We're going to try to include Dr. Baraki in this <laughs> rapid fire question because I know that he loves this so much. But in, in uh, this time around, this, these are medically related things. Okay. So we'll start off here. Nate, commonly asked question we get all the time. What about catch up sleep? So I don't sleep during the week that much, but on the weekends I crash, I catch up. That's fine, right? No, it's not uh, because what that typically what that typically will contribute is uh, you having difficulty with going to sleep once you've caught up. If you're more sleep satiated on the back end, you have less sleep drive and therefore are less effective at going to sleep later. So my recommendation is if you can if you can avoid it and try to maintain a regular sleep schedule, that's more ideal. Uh, Austin, during the weeks that you work in the hospital, when you're on and you're potentially getting less sleep, what do you do? Like how do, how do you even function? Uh, well, so I would point out that I'm not in residency anymore. And so my, <laughs> I actually tend to have relatively little issues with respect to, to sleep. I don't do night call anymore or anything like that. So my sleep schedule overall tends to stay pretty consistent. I'd say that when I was in residency, then it was a similar deal. I tended, I tried to be as regular as I could with my sleep, but of course, sometimes it was out of my control. So if I had, you know, the, the long, you know, 28 hour ICU calls or something that would be erratic. Um, there's really nothing that I could do about it other than recognize that it was a temporary deal when I was on that rotation, when I'd have other rotations where I have no choice, but to train later in the evening, like Nate was saying, I would have to be going up to, you know, an RPE nine set on the squad or the deadlift at like, you know, nine 45 at night and trying to be in bed by like 10 15 or something. I just did what I had to do. Cause I didn't want to not train, uh, at that time. So, um, I did what I could recognizing that it was temporary. And then as soon as that period passed, then I tried to normalize things as much as possible. So, yeah, that's actually true. Cause, uh, I knew that if I texted Austin after like 8 PM on the Pacific standard time, which would be 10 PM where he was at, it's a high likelihood he was asleep. This is even during residency, unless I knew he was on nights. And so now, even though he's not in residence anymore, I sent him text messages that say you up at like <laughs> seven or 8 PM <laughs> just to see. Yes. All right. Uh, Nate, what about melatonin? My naturopath told me that as long as I, if I start taking melatonin, that's going to cure my insomnia. Yeah, so that's going to be a, a no for me, dog, I think, in general. Um, in general, uh, I mean, it's not a bad thing to try, uh, but in general, the evidence doesn't support uh, a significant improvement in either sleep latency, so how long it takes you to fall asleep, and or sleep, uh, how long you're asleep for. Um, in times when it is uh, semi-helpful, might be uh, when you're having circadian issues, so if you're trying to move someone's uh, circadian rhythm, either you know forward or backward, that might be helpful. And there have been some studies that have suggested that it's helpful with jet lag, but uh, uh, even that is a little bit questionable. So in general, I'd say no. Got it. Uh, Baraki, so I am looking to get a new watch, and I would love it if I could get one of those uh, health-related watches that told me how much I slept and how much deep sleep I got. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, yeah, I tend to recommend against those, uh, Dr. Gordon. Feel free to chime in here as well. But I wrote a piece about this on our website uh, about two years ago called Placebo Sleep in 2018. Um, and this had to do with kind of a potential nocebo effect of uh, using these kind of like sleep tracking devices because uh, you may be sleeping reasonably well uh, and then 
say you have kind of a normal, you know, we all experience some degree of tiredness at some point, and then suddenly you start looking at this to track it and your watch, which is of questionable validity a lot of the times, may tell you that you had a whole bunch of, you know, poor quality poor quality sleep, for example, um, or you may feel fine and you look at your watch and it tells you you had poor quality sleep and that may kind of nocebo you from that standpoint as well. Uh, so I think that, you know, we should be primarily focused on uh, not trying to like biohack and optimize every aspect of our lives and like measure all these things that don't necessarily need to be measured. If you're having concerning symptoms, things that are distressing to you, affecting your quality of life, then get them evaluated kind of through validated proper means. And if not, then there's no need to go looking for problems that may not exist. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that statement. I think in general, um, having an idea as to where your sleep is, is not a bad idea, but it's, you know, exactly as Austin pointed out, it can become problematic and anxiety provoking. Um, just as similarly as like, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at the clock and you see that you have like, you know, three hours until your alarm's supposed to go off and you start freaking out about that, that's, that is a, you know, that is a negatively impacting sort of, uh, behavior. Um, so I'd say it's okay to check in with how much sleep you're getting in general um, uh, once in a while, but it's not something that I would track exclusively unless you're doing it in conjunction with something like CBTI or a sleep physician's helping you with that. Sure. And I would just make the further recommendation that if you're going to like use objective metrics, because you can do like a, you can use us do a sleep diary, for example, that's not unheard of to recommend like a, to get a, a, for a kind of better characterization of insomnia, for example. So like, what time did you go to bed? What time did you wake up? How long do you think it took you to go to sleep? How many times did you wake up? Like all sorts of stuff that you're just like logging in a legitimately a diary. Right. Um, and then, you know, you get to rate, like, are you tired in the morning or do you feel well rested on a scale? So there's, there's like that stuff exists. Uh, but if you're using like a wear, like wearable tech that's trying to tell you how many hours you spent in various stages of sleep, uh, those are not well validated. And like, could you know, in addition to giving you data you might not even need, the data might not even be accurate or precise, which questions the whole thing. Like, why are you doing this? If you're getting a sleep study done, <laughs> well, you can use that data, you know, because it's uh, uh, it is accurate and precise. But the actual wearable tech can't really comment on the accuracy or precision of that at the present time. So moving on, yeah. Nate, this is uh, these are rapid fire. So you, this is like a Rorschach test, but for medicine. Okay. All right. So we're talking about appliances here, not like plug in like appliances, but like appliances that people use to sleep. And so you get to say yes or no, and then maybe like a sentence, but it's like a Twitter response. It's gotta be short. Okay. Got it. Breathe right strips. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Eye mask. I don't know what that is. Like you got the mask you wear oh, over yeah. your eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are reasonable. Yes. Great. Earplugs. Uh, yes. White noise. Like a fan. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, in, in certain certain individuals. It's individual, but yes. How about uh, TV? I use a TV to go to sleep. Uh, preferably no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. These are just common questions. All right. And last one, I want both of you guys to respond to this. How, Nate, you can start. How important do you think it is for the circadian rhythm for people to get outside and expose themselves to the sun on a daily basis? Oh, man. It's so, so, so important. It's, I mean, if there's one thing that listeners can take away pertaining to the circadian rhythm, because I know that was a little bit uh, like over their heads, it's that 
light is the most sensitive driver of that. So I would highly recommend that during the day you get lots of light exposure and at night you try to limit that light exposure. So just, you know, what if, what if somebody's sleeping uh, or has to do like a night shift? What would you recommend there? Yeah. So as they're coming off of their night shift, try to limit the amount of light exposure that you're getting uh, in the morning so that you can still um, sort of convince your body to go to sleep. Uh, but then as soon as you wake up, ideally you're ex- exposing yourself to bright light um, so that you're, again, trying to entrain that, that, uh, that pattern and that rhythm um, so that your body knows, hey, it's time for me to be awake now. Excellent. Baraki, anything on sun exposure? Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that uh, myself. There's one other comment I was going to make uh, separate to this, but I didn't want to make sure you get through your Q&As first. Sure, I'm good. Go ahead. Oh, um, it was uh, on the topic of sleep apnea. The one thing I wanted to add, uh, just because it's very common concern in our uh, population is, is people who are concerned about low testosterone or hypogonadism and the association there with uh, obstructive sleep apnea, as well as a number of the risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea with low testosterone. And I've seen lots of patients, guys who got their tests done and they want to get started on treatment or somebody's already started them on testosterone replacement therapy without an appropriate evaluation for sleep apnea. And, uh, you know, having severe untreated sleep apnea is actually a contraindication or what, you know, a reason to not start TRT in somebody because it can exacerbate the sleep apnea further. And additionally, treating the sleep apnea can actually improve the hypogonadism, can improve their testosterone levels, as well as treating the other risk factors, including overweight, obesity, things like that. So that's a big one that I think is underrecognized that I look for a lot in these people who, you know, oftentimes may be interested in pursuing TRT without realizing that there are other things that need to be either ruled out and or treated that may actually obviate the need for them to get that treated at all. Yeah, I'd agree. I think at, at a minimum for those patients who are about to get started on TRT, um, a, question, a screening questionnaire should be completed. And if it's not, that's, you know, you're wrong. Perfect. Guys, we did it. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Nate, so much for joining us. Listeners at home, we have a bunch of resources in the description below. So go check those out if you want to learn more about this. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always with Dr. Austin Baraki and our special guest, Dr. Nate Gordon. If you guys are listening on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and review really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll catch you on the next episode. See you.